Welcome to episode 91 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, if you're new to backpacking, How long are you allowed to claim that beginner status? And what does it mean to be a beginner? Then on today's top five list, are you ready to go tentless? We'll share some benefits. Next on today's Summit Gear Review, Hyperlite Mountain Gear has a pack that shaves ounces, if not pounds, while still being tougher than your grandpa's drill sergeant. On the Backpack Hack of the Week, a simple and cheap way to get double the insulation. All this and that's about it today on the first 40 miles. On the ride home from a recent backpacking trip, Josh said, you know, we've been doing this podcast for almost two years. At what point are we no longer beginners? You know, at what point do we lose that beginner status? We've approached the podcast that way, you know, as beginners or Josh, as you getting into backpacking almost as a beginner. You did it a lot when you were a teenager and then you kind of had to relearn some of those things that you had forgotten. And you started the podcast just uh, two months after taking your very first 40 mile backpacking trip. So now that it's been two years, are you still a beginner? You know, looking at the numbers Two years might seem like a long time, you know, to be doing something. You would expect that someone would have gained some level of mastery. But if you look at just the number of trips that we've taken, we've only taken maybe seven or eight backpacking trips. That's pretty much one a quarter for the last two years. So I think we're a long ways away from losing our beginner status. (laughs) I still feel like, you know, when we go out with someone who's more experienced, I still feel like you know, the new guy on the job. I just don't know as much as as everyone else. For us, backpacking is something that we fit into an otherwise busy life because we know how much just joy it brings to us, how valuable and, and, and good it is for us and for our family. But backpacking isn't our identity. It's not the thing that we do every single weekend or um, you know, we've never done a through hike. We haven't spent an entire summer on the trail. People who are always out backpacking uh, obviously are going to gain a lot more experience a lot more quickly than we have. But I think that a lot of people can relate with our situation where they, they want to get out and they want to figure out this backpacking thing because of all the, the cool things about it. But they know it's not going to become their life or their identity. You know, it's not going to become something they do all the time or all summer or anything like that. They know they're going to have to squeeze it in on a weekend here and there or on spring break or on a family vacation. And that's exactly what we've done. And that means that uh, after two years, yeah, we've still only done a few trips and we're still just learning a lot every time we go out. And I think there's something so important, too, about keeping that beginner mindset you know, where you recognize that you don't know everything and that there's more to learn. Uh, It also makes it so you can recognize that there is a different way of looking at things, a different way to do things. And then you're not afraid to experiment 
because you really aren't set in your ways yet. You're still like every trip is an experiment. So you try what works, you try what doesn't work, and you're constantly in that sponge mode. I've noticed in lots of things, there's kind of this confidence curve. In fact, there's probably some special name for it. I don't know. But as a beginner, you're really unconfident, asking questions about everything, unsure about what your first trip is going to be like. And as you go and you start to gain some experience and knowledge, your confidence increases as well. And then I think your confidence peaks. And as you become an expert who knows a whole lot about something, I think your confidence may actually level off or even drop a little as you realize just how much there is that you don't know yet. You know, that the experts, when they really get into something, they get to that point where they realize that there is just so much more to learn. But somewhere in the middle, you get to the height of that confidence curve where you think you've learned it all <laughs> and you're really confident. And it takes a little longer before you realize, oh, no, I haven't learned it all. And so I think there's great value in keeping that beginner mindset. It's nice to have enough confidence to get out there and enjoy the trip, not be too worried or nervous or anxious about it, but not so much confidence that you're not open to new ways of doing things. I kind of wonder if it's the beginners that inspire or shake the foundation of the experts. You know, the beginners are the ones always asking the questions. And these are questions that experts asked years ago and they learned the answer to, but maybe the answers have changed. And so people who've been backpacking for 30 or 40 years, they have their ways of doing things, but the technology has changed. The practices have changed. The way that we approach things has changed. Medicine changes. I mean, we just, it's, it's so smart to be always learning. I found this survey in Backpacker Magazine that talked about beginners. It said 18% of men still consider themselves beginners after one to three years of experience. And then 30% of women still see themselves as beginners after one to three years of backpacking experience. So men tend to be more confident than women. But confidence is kind of a subjective thing, isn't it? It doesn't directly correlate to experience. Now, otherwise, women and men would have the same level of confidence as they built up their experience. But instead, men tend to feel confident more quickly than women do. It's just kind of an interesting stat. Yeah, so I guess you could even say that women feel like beginners longer, and so maybe they're in learning mode longer, and they have more opportunities to learn skills and dive deeper into some of those core basics of backpacking, which will end up being great in the long run. Right, right. Yeah, there's also some strong statistics about uh, traumatic injuries. <laughs> <laughs> they are much more likely to happen to men than to women. Just saying. <laughs> So being a beginner is a good thing, and I really want to hold on to that status as long as I can. For today's top five list, we'll be sharing the top five reasons to go tentless, or why tents aren't all that. In episode 75, we talked about the benefits of using a tent. We talked about things like privacy and protection, climate control, and the feeling of home that it gives you as well as the fact that you don't need to find any trees to hang your tent from. But with a little persuading from the Hang Your Own Hang podcast guys, uh, Jonathan and Mark, we recently tried our first night of hammock camping. And if you listened to last week's episode, episode 90, we shared all about that experience of spending our first night in a hammock. Well, hammocks aren't the only way to go tentless, but today we'd like to talk about why you might want to just ditch the tent and leave it home. 
Ditching the tent means that you could be sleeping in a hammock or on top of a tarp on the ground or underneath a tarp that you've pitched or holed up in a rotted out log. However you want to do tentless, there are lots of different ways to have adequate protection and shelter while leaving your tent at home. So the number one reason to go tentless is because it keeps you cool. The tent usually provides around five to 10 degrees of warmth. So on hot summer nights, you want to enjoy all the ventilation you can get. So sleeping out in the open means that a breeze will blow across your skin instead of blowing across your nylon tent. And on a warm summer morning, it's amazing how quickly your tent can heat up inside as the sun comes up. Yeah, it's like a little sauna, especially if you're underneath a sleeping bag. You go from comfortable to overheated really quickly. The number two reason to go tentless is you'll have no wet walls. If you've ever had a great night of sleep in a tent and then stretched out only to have your hand hit the wet side of a tent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the water is not rain. Yeah. The, the rain is on the outside of your tent, on the outside of the fly. So this is something else that's on the inside <laughs> wall of your tent. Okay. For a long time, I thought it was your breath that was stuck to the wall. So it was like human saliva that was dripping down the wall tent, which is maybe why I was so grossed out about it. But actually, I figured out that it's just collected moisture from your breath. It's not spit. So you know when trumpet players blow out of their spit valve? It's actually just condensation. It's not spit. Hope science is right on this one, that it's not spit that I'm touching on the walls of my tent. It's just water that's evaporated from my mouth. Well, thank you for drawing that fine distinction between <laughs> moisture in one's breath and saliva in one's mouth. <laughs> Either way, it came from me and it came from you and it's on the wall of our tent. Well, if you sleep in a tarp shelter or in a hammock with a tarp overhead, you will have maximum ventilation with no condensation. And if you just sleep on the ground, you know, with no tarp overhead, you will have dew and that'll get your sleeping bag a little bit damp, but that's doable. Oh boy. Doable. Yeah. I would rather have dew than condensation. Well, and it didn't come from inside your body. Yeah. Yes. That is a benefit. The number three reason to go tentless is because it's lightweight. If you consider the weight of a hammock or just a flat tarp to sleep on, it's much lighter than a tent. And if you use a hammock, you can possibly leave home some gear like a sleeping pad. Uh, you can leave home, of course, your poles and your tent. And you may be able to leave home your sleeping bag and just use a really light blanket if you have an underquilt for your hammock. So that's something to look into. Altogether, it's going to weigh less than a tent. And then if you sleep on the ground with a tarp set up over you, you can use your trekking poles instead of tent poles to set up your tarp. And if you're interested in learning about how to put up a really simple tarp shelter with just a couple trekking poles and some guy lines, we'll put the link in the show notes so you can check that out. And you can find today's episode at thefirst40miles.com slash 091. And if you're looking for kind of an in-between way to dip your toe into going tentless, but you're still a little nervous about it, then the fast pitch option might be a good way to go. A lot of tents come with, uh, you know, they've got the body of the tent and the poles and then the full rain fly that completely covers the tent. 
And tents that come like that usually have what's called the fast pitch option, where you can leave the tent body at home and just bring the rain fly and the poles. And you do need a, a footprint or a tarp to go on the bottom because the poles need to actually poke into something that's going to keep them standing up. But you eliminate some of the weight of your tent. You know, you, so you probably cut, I'm guessing, a third of the weight because you leave the tent home, but you still bring the rainfly and the poles, and you still bring a, a small lightweight tarp. But it does cut some weight, and it does open you up a little bit to the outside world. And, and so maybe it's a good kind of in-between step. And then after that, you can say, okay, that went all right. So maybe next time I'll actually leave the whole thing home. The number four reason to go tentless is because it gives you the opportunity to be a foreign exchange student versus a tourist. When you remove the walls of the tent, it removes the layer that separates you from the natives. And when you do that, you have the opportunity to live like they live. You become less insulated from their world and more a part of their world. A tent can sometimes do us a disservice because it closes us off from the people, the plants, the animals, and some of the sounds of the forest. And when you hear a bird speak its language, you can actually watch it and see what it does. It becomes a much more immersive experience. And maybe that's why they made me spend that one night at scout camp many years ago with just my sleeping bag. The Boy Scouts of America has the Order of the Arrow. It's kind of the special, uh, I guess I would say like a service club within the Boy Scouts. And I, during scout camp one year, I was inducted into the Order of the Arrow. And this involved going back to my camp and grabbing my sleeping bag and just a couple other little things, and heading out that night into the woods. And I was responsible for just finding a spot and laying out my sleeping bag and spending the night there. And then the next morning, we got up and uh, we did a service project all throughout that next day. And the entire about 24-hour period was all done in silence. And I think there was a purpose behind having us just go out and, and sleep all by ourselves just on the ground. And I think that was to take those walls away, take away the, the stuff that kind of separates us from our surroundings, and to give us that experience of just being where all of the animals are and just experiencing it and taking it in. Well, I think that leads perfectly into our next reason to go tentless, and that is that the mystery is solved. When you take down the walls of the tent, all of a sudden, those noises that once spooked you while you were in your tent, all you have to do is open your eyes and see what's making those sounds. I was really surprised by my hammock experience because even though the hammock was very open, I didn't have a bug net or anything, I felt very safe inside the hammock. And on past trips, when I slept in my tent, I could only imagine what those sounds were outside of my tent. But without a tent, all I had to do was open my eyes, which really decreased my anxiety that I had felt while sleeping in a tent. I thought that was a really interesting experience. That was a complete surprise to us. We really felt like leaving our tent home was going to bring all kinds of new anxieties to us because we felt like that tent provided that psychological protection. We knew it was a thin wall and it wasn't really protecting us from something like a bear, you know, or anything like that. But we just felt like it gave us that psychological protection that, you know, little critters were crawling around 
or flying around outside all through the woods, but we were protected in our little dome. And then to have that experience our first night in hammocks was a total shocker uh, where it was like, oh, well, now that we can see what's going on and we know what's making those sounds, we can identify it, we can label it, and then we're no longer afraid of it. Well, this is a great topic for beginners because this means one more piece of gear that you might not have to buy. If you're going out uh, when it's warm or if you've got the right hammock set up, you might not need that tent. And you might have assumed that every backpacker needs a tent. Uh, we'd love to hear experiences from listeners. Uh, just post things on Facebook or Twitter. What have your experiences been like if you've gone tentless? Or if you haven't gone tentless and you're willing to try it in the next few weeks? And then tell us how it went. Uh, we'd love to hear it. For today's Summit Gear Review, we will be reviewing the Hyperlite Mountain Gear 2400 Southwest Backpack. Hyperlite Mountain Gear packs fall into the ultralight category, but we wanted to share them on the show today because we feel like Hyperlite Mountain Gear has set up a pattern for the way that gear companies should work. Mike St. Pierre is the owner and creative mind at Hyperlite Mountain Gear, but he's not anxious to take all the credit. He recognizes that so much of the improvements on his packs are based on the feedback that he gets from people who are dragging his gear up one side of the mountain and down the other. And Hyperlite mountain gear packs are significantly different than the standard array of packs that you'll find in the backpacking store. And it's because of this uh, desire to go ultralight, uh, kind of combined with the responding to customer feedback and making those little tweaks and improvements along the way. And so the differences start right with structure the first part of the Summit Gear Review. The 2400 Southwest pack uses a special fiber. You may have heard of Cuban fiber, which is now called Dyneema. And Hyperlite uses a special variation of that fabric formerly known as Cuban. <laughs> uh, it is called Dyneema Composite Fabric Hybrid. Uh, it's an ultra-durable, ultra-light, and also water-resistant fabric. And really, the only thing that doesn't make it fully waterproof is the stitching to put it together. But they do seam seal the stitching, so it's very close to being waterproof, which means, of course, that you can do without the rain cover on this pack, uh, which is one of the many ways to save weight. Dyneema composite fabric is 50 to 70% lighter than Kevlar, but four times stronger than Kevlar, and uh, has a lot of flexibility without losing strength. It weighs less than still nylon which is uh, nylon that's been impregnated with silicon. It floats on water and has really high chemical and UV resistance. You know, I wonder why more packs aren't made with this material. If it's so amazing, so incredible, has all these properties, why, why aren't we seeing it in more packs? And I think the answer is color. Color, oh. Dyneema comes in white. And last fall, they just came out with a new color. Ooh, what, what, what? Oh, let me guess. Jewel of the Nile purple. Nope. It can't be orange because Tuli already took that color. What? Black. Yeah, so it now comes in white and black. <laughs> and I think a big part of making backpacks for sale in the backpacking stores or the big box stores or, you know, kind of the, the, the largest part of the market. I think a big part of that is color and the aesthetic design of the pack. 
And when your only choices are white and now black, that becomes really limiting in terms of creating a pack that's going to stand out, uh, you know, on the wall of 50 packs over there. Yeah, but for someone like you, Josh, who's a minimalist, I bet you're loving this, white or black. Yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, Hyperlite Mountain Gear packs are meant to be used hard. I know when I got my Osprey pack back in 2014, I was even afraid to put it on the ground because I didn't want to scuff up the bottom of the pack. But that is not an issue with this pack. The bottom is 150 denier Dyneema composite fabric. The external pockets on this pack are made of yet another Dyneema material called Dyneema Hardline, which is interesting because it's white and black. It's like this grid pattern. So I'm guessing in the future Dyneema is going to create more variation. I mean, at least for the pack industry, that might be nice to have some variation of white and black. All of HMG's packs are made in Maine. USA. The suspension on the HMG 2400 Southwest is also really simple bare bones. Again, because the goal here is to be super light. So it has a couple of contoured aluminum stays that go inside the pack, you know, near your back. Those are removable, but they're very helpful for keeping the structure of the pack. And then it has simple shoulder straps and a simple hip belt. Along with the contoured aluminum stays, it also has a quarter-inch foam back panel pad. For utility, this pack has a load capacity of 20 to 40 pounds, which is just about as much as you would ever want to carry on a typical backpacking trip. An ultralight pack really has to be paired with ultralight gear all the way. So if you're saving a couple pounds in the weight of the pack itself, you're also using a pack that's probably not going to have quite the load carrying capacity of other packs. And why is that? Because if you're into ultralight gear, you're also going to have an ultralight sleep system, an ultralight clothing, and so on. So everything needs to be ultralight and ultra compact, since this only has a capacity of about 40 liters. Now that's on the small side for backpacking, but they did that on purpose because they know that the people who are buying their packs are people who are going ultralight with everything, not just the pack itself. On the exterior of this bag, there are three pockets. One of them is fairly large, and then one on each side of that are about Nalgene-sized. So the big one would be a really great place for you to shove your rain gear and maybe a puffy down coat in a dry bag. The only thing that makes me kind of nervous about this larger pocket on the outside is that there's no way to close off that pocket, like not even a snap or a piece of Velcro. And I would love to see just like even a little loop so that if someone wanted to, they could at least hook it closed just to be safe. There are five compression straps on this bag, which means that the load is worn closer to you for greater stability and balance. You can really cinch it down. The HMG 2400 Southwest has a roll top closure which means you just seal the Velcro top and then roll it down and clip it into place. Kind of like you do for a dry bag. Same concept. This pack does have a hydration sleeve and a hydration port, but no other internal compartments. As far as mass goes, this pack weighs an amazing 1.79 pounds or 28.6 ounces or 811 grams. 
under a kilo. That's amazing. Compare that to my Deuter pack that comes in at over four pounds and your Osprey, I think also in that four to five pound range. As far as volume goes, this is called the 2400 Southwest because it's 2400 cubic inches, which translates to 40 liters. But if you add in all the other little pockets on the outside, it ends up being more like 56 liters. But really, I would treat it more like a 40 liter bag. The height when it's fully unrolled is 30 inches. But same thing with that. Don't count on being able to use all 30 inches of space because you'll want to be able to seal it up and roll it down. For maintenance, you don't have to baby this bag. You can really take it on your roughest trips. You can bushwhack to your heart's content and use your gear the way that Mother Nature never intended. You know, she's always doing her best to keep you away from those areas of beauty and solitude by creating things like craggy rocks, briar patches, and thick forests. And this pack is really designed to help you blaze through just about anything. For investment, this pack is $290. As far as trial goes, Hyperlite Mountain Gear really cuts out everything that they consider to be non-essential. There are very few gear straps on the exterior of this pack for things like external storage. And it's not really an issue if you're not one to use external storage, like Josh. But it does come with exterior buckles, which you can use for optional pack accessory straps, which you may not even need to buy from Hyperlite Mountain Gear. You could just probably buy the right width that you need just from your fabric store. And based on my experience, the only thing that I would truly truly want to change about the 2400 Southwest is the Velcro closure inside the inner rim of the bag. And you know, as of today, it could be something that they've already changed. I don't know, but they're always tweaking things and changing things. I felt like when I reached into the bag, the Velcro hooks tended to grab onto my clothing and scratch up the back of my hand. So small inconvenience, but it could be solved with something like Omni Tape or snag-free Velcro. Or, because it's a roll-top bag, I could simply just unstitch the Velcro and do without the hook and loop closure altogether and just roll down the bag. So we've talked about the features and benefits of the Hyperlite Mountain Gear 2400 Southwest, which for me boil down to two things. It's ultra-light and it's ultra-durable. But I think it's important, let's, let's kind of run through what is it that you give up when you go for this ultralight pack, besides the fact that you give up colors, you know. But there's some important features that you give up that you would find in the typical packs that you see at the backpacking store. The first one is capacity. This pack is made ultralight and it's designed to carry an ultralight payload. And so as you get up to 40 pounds, you're really maxing out the suspension on this pack and you're gonna feel it on your hips and your shoulders. And that ultralight payload is usually really compact. So if you go stuffing a bulky sleeping bag and a bulky tent into this pack, you've just used up the, all the space in the pack. There's nothing left over for anything else. So everything's got to be small and compact. You're also giving up suspension and load carrying capacity. Again, because it's designed to carry a lighter load, that means they don't put as much padding on and they don't put as much bulk and weight into the suspension features of the pack. You lose ventilation 
a lot of packs, if, if you look at the back part that, that goes against your back, they've used uh, either a webbing or some uh, cushioning to keep the pack itself maybe an inch or two away from your back and allow for ventilation as you sweat. Uh, the Hyperlite pack is going to come right up to your back and you're going to sweat pretty quickly, especially against that waterproof fabric. You're also giving up access points, so it's just one bag with a couple exterior pockets. You don't have a lower access point, you know, where you would typically store your sleeping bag. You're going to need to pull everything out to get down to the bottom and, and get that sleeping bag out. And you also give up uh, load lifters. These are the little straps that attach between the shoulder strap and the body of the pack that can affect how closely the pack rides to your back. And, and you won't have that option here uh, with the Hyperlite Mountain Gear pack. And finally, a lot of packs come with adjustable torso length, uh, some kind of a, usually a Velcro-like attachment where you can move the shoulder straps up or down to fit your own torso length. The Hyperlite Mountain Gear pack has the shoulder straps permanently stitched to the body of the pack. Same thing with the hip belt. And so that torso length is fixed. And especially because you don't have the tensioning straps between the shoulder straps and the body of the pack, you don't even have that little area of adjustment to maybe account for different torso length. You know, it's interesting, as you reduce the load in your pack, some of those things that you mentioned become less critical. And if you have like a 40-pound load, then you're going to need all of the suspension, a load capacity, and ventilation, and all the the adjustability. So this is a great thing for the first 40 milers to consider. As you move toward lightening up your gear, this pack may be a really great option for getting you to that next level, you know, really shaving off some weight and helping you to prioritize what actually goes into your pack. All in all, the 2400 Southwest from Hyperlite Mountain Gear is a truly incredible piece of gear and well worth the cost. It's very lightweight, it's industrially rugged, and is constructed with the minimalist needs of a backpacker in mind. For today's backpack hack of the week, layering pads. We all know that we can layer our clothing and that helps for, you know, when it's super cold outside, you just put another layer on and then when we go to buy a sleeping pad, we have to figure out, man, do I need a pad for 50 degree nights or do I need a pad for 20 degree nights? So if you have one of those cheap blue pads that's maybe an R value of two and you know that you're going to be going on a trip where the temperature is going to dip lower than what you're comfortable with, you can actually double up on your pads. So it doesn't save you weight. It doesn't save you any bulk but it sure saves money because you can take two of those cheap pads and it's going to be as powerful as one of those really expensive pads. This hack was inspired by Nicole, one of our listeners who asked us this question over Facebook back in January. And she said, well, I've got this pad that's only a 1.3 R value and I'm worried about whether it's going to be warm enough on 10 degree nights. And we wrote back and said, no way, it's not going to be warm enough for 10 degree nights. And she was wondering, you know, is there a cheaper alternative to going out and buying a new, more expensive sleeping pad that's going to have the high R value? She ended up finding a, a good sleeping pad from Big Agnes that had an R value of five. 
And so she was happy with that. But one of the options that we proposed was this hack here. Hey, just take that pad that you've got and pair it with one more pad that you may already have in your gear closet. And the R value adds up. So if one of those pads is 1.3 and the other is 3, well, that adds up to 4.3. Another thing you could do if you're already out on a trip and it's a lot colder than you expected it to be is you can fold your pad in half and just sleep in the fetal position. That'll at least keep you warm for a night and give you a little more insulation. And we'll leave you with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Charlotte Bronte. She said, We know that God is everywhere, but certainly we feel his presence most when his works are on the grandest scale spread before us, and it is in the unclouded night sky where his worlds wheel their silent course, that we read clearest his infinitude, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this podcast, then get outside or start planning your next adventure. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. So I guess you would say it has a low-pitched crinkle, not like a potato chip bag that has the high-pitched crinkle. And definitely not like a Sun Chips bag. Oh, oh those man. are the worst. <laughs> Mid-show <laughs> high five. <laughs> oh, another high five. Come on. We're doing a good job today. <laughs> a lot of ultra-weight. Ultra-weight? That's a new type of backpacking. Oh, yeah, I just made that up right now.